Hello and welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing podcast series, where professionals share their insights on key transfer pricing developments. Today, we will be discussing Brexit and what it means from a transfer pricing perspective. My name is Dana Hart, and joining me today, I have Loic Webb-Martin, a transfer pricing partner in our PwC London office. Loic will be moderating the discussion today. Also from our PwC London office, I have Susan Edwards, a director with our transfer pricing practice, and Stephen Brown, a senior manager in our transfer pricing practice. Loic, I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to you to get the discussion started. Thanks, Dana. The the UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, has been clear for a long time that her Brexit deal was the only one on the table. Uh, But what's become clear over the last six weeks or so is that the UK Parliament has rejected that deal. Right now, Brexit has been extended to the 31st of October 2019. And there appears to be little appetite from uh, other European territories to renegotiate the terms of the withdrawal agreement. But there is still scope to adjust the future relationship between the UK and the EU27. And what seems clear now is that that future relationship will need to be reset compared to the deal that Theresa May had negotiated. In fact, it seems now much more likely that a softer Brexit than originally anticipated will be possible, with the potential for a customs union and possibly even single market access. What that means is there's a much wider range of outcomes um, possible now, and for companies, that makes planning more complex. Steve and Susan, I know each of you has been working with clients across a range of industry sectors, and I'll come to you shortly. For myself, I work a lot in the financial services sector, and for particularly banks and insurance companies operating uh, in that part of the world, The lead time to prepare for Brexit has been very long because in many cases it takes a court-approved order to be able to move a back book from the UK into, into Europe. And the effect of that in financial services is that a lot of groups are well advanced on their Brexit planning and in many cases have already implemented their Uh, their new operating model and are well advanced in terms of uh, the transfer pricing associated with that model. Susan, perhaps if I can start with you, what's your experience of the companies uh, and sectors that you've been advising? How are groups there developing and implementing their plans for Brexit? Thank you, Louis. And what I'd say really is that the responses from companies really generally depend on how heavily they are impacted by Brexit. So the key sectors that I've been advising on generally are either regulated businesses, so uh, pharmaceuticals, betting and gaming, or uh, fintech businesses, um, or those with significant supply chains in or out of the UK, so for example, fashion retail. Um, this Affected companies you know, generally um, have set up cross-functional Brexit steering committees um, which um, are sort of um, across the business but do have finance and tax representation. Um, many of, of the companies have also undertaken um, detailed feasibility studies to assess whether they do need to change their existing structures, not just from a tax perspective but also um, much broader um, from a commercial perspective including legal, personnel, HR issues, etc. I think what's clear from the clients that I work with is that 
you know, given the uncertainties regarding the UK's departure from the UK, um, when that will happen and what transitional arrangements um, will be put in place. Many of our clients are quite hesitant to put in place big bang changes to their structure and instead are opting for phased entries into a second EU country. Okay, thank you. And so Stephen, turning to you, I, I guess I've got two questions for you. The, the first is really around what the short-term or immediate impact on supply chains is. Um, so how do you see that playing out in the near term, Stephen? Um, thanks, Lee. So I think there's been a number of examples of different actions businesses have taken, um, both in the lead-up to what was meant to be the departure date about uh, a few weeks back and in the post-Brexit context. So some of the specific actions are building up inventory, either in the UK or in Europe. That might be in existing warehouses or in new warehouses that um, businesses have taken on, either for short-term or longer-term planning. Some manufacturers in particular, and this is quite um, prevalent in the automotive sector, have planned to shut down their manufacturing plants for scheduled maintenance, which is something they do every year, but they've timed it to coincide with the, the, the exit date. Um, another example I've seen with a, um, another business is realigning their, their manufacturing plant. So, in effect, moving manufacturing to where their customers are located rather than centralising their product to preempt some of the border delays that might come from, from Brexit. So I'm hearing some tactical moves either to minimise the impact through inventory holding or possibly in some cases more fundamental realignment of, of production. If you cast your mind forward then, Stephen, what do you see as the long-term transfer pricing consequences for, for companies that are going through a Brexit restructuring? I think a key factor in answering that question is going to be based on what deal is eventually agreed between the UK and the EU. However, where changes to the business operating model and their organisational structure are quite simple and basic, the transfer pricing should be quite straightforward. However, I think a key risk, depending on the amount of divergence between the two governments and agreements that are reached, is around gradual changes within a business and whether that might coincide over a long period of time with a fundamental change in the functional characterization of, of the different businesses across the supply chain and what that could mean in a Chapter 9 business restructuring context and looking at things like exit taxes and other such issues. I also feel that there is um, an increasing likelihood of disputes over the, the next couple of years as tax authorities inquire into these um, restructuring and also through different transparency measures such as country-by-country um, -country reporting and European mandatory disclosure rules as well. Yeah, interesting. Well, I'd certainly like to come back to the exit issues and, and the, the potential for disputes. Um, and certainly from my perspective, I'm absolutely seeing that day one, if you like, where regulatory alignment is quite close, groups are much less um, uncomfortable about what that position means. But uh, over the long term, as those regulatory positions may diverge, some uh, potential for uh, disparity and, and concern. So, Susan, um, I guess just thinking about the role of the UK within the EU, for many non-UK parented groups, and, and I'd include a lot of US uh, headquartered or Japanese headquartered businesses, the UK has really been the, their foothold into the European market. How do you see that changing as a result of uh, Brexit? Well, for non-UK parented groups, Louis, um, you know, given the likely disruption and cost associated with any structural changes, I'm generally seeing a fairly measured and light touch approach, certainly uh, with non-regulated businesses. 
key concerns for these businesses are really the ability to attract senior talent, uh, recruitment of a broader workforce, which may include a lot of EU um, workers, business travel for non-EU nationals into the UK, so whether that is US or Japanese, um, individuals from the headquarters coming into the UK, um, and often um, negotiating property leases with EU landlords. So, you know, these really are some of the critical issues um, that have been on the minds of um, such groups, um, rather than just the, the tax situation. Um, and as a result, groups are tending to implement, I'd say, small mitigating actions um, to deal with um, specific issues rather than making wholesale changes to their structures. Um, if I think about Japanese parented groups in particular, you know, they regularly use single entity structures with a European head office located in the UK um, on European branches. Um, I think the key conclusion um, on the clients that I work with is that these structures are still viable and they still work. And all of the other benefits that the UK brings in terms of being an attractive location from perspective of language, um, location, time difference and availability of skilled workforce um, all still exist um, regardless of what's happening with Brexit. Interesting. So, consistent with Stephen, then, some tactical questions being considered, but um, not fundamental realignment of, of operating or, or transfer pricing models. So, if we, um, if we perhaps move on then, I, I know in my experience there's um, a lot of groups that I'm working with who've had to move um, assets, in particular, as I say, in financial services, their back books from the UK into Europe. Susan, what in your experience is the interaction between the transfer pricing model and the value of any assets or business being transferred to, to new European structures? That's a really good question, Louise. So obviously the TP model and hence any pricing arrangements for a new European uh, business um, is directly impacted by the future profits that it can make. Um, and those profits will then determine the price that a third party would be willing to pay for the assets that are being transferred and hence the valuation of those assets. Um, so, you know, the TP and valuation aspects are closely interlinked. You know, there clearly can be tension um, when you're moving um, assets or business into a new European location, especially if there's a if that location is lower tax, um, um, especially where clients may want to have relatively low substance in that new territory. So low substance would generally equate to low profits in the new territory. Um, and a lower exit charge, but um, clearly that doesn't take full advantage of the, the lower tax rate in, um, in the second country. Um, but really, the correct answer will be you know, highly dependent on the facts and the level of substance in the new second European country. So a few things to balance there. One, trying to look at the value of the assets that are leaving. Two, trying to get the future tax model right, recognising substance and tax profile. And if we think about the, the reaction of um, HMRC here in the UK or, or other European tax authorities, I guess my experience is that HMRC certainly are um, alert to the sorts of issues that many groups are having to, to face, and that is in particular around um, transfers of, of assets and the lack of clarity around how to value those, those assets. Um, I've seen HMRC recognise and engage with um, industry bodies, certainly across a number of the different financial service sectors that, that we, um, we advise on. I guess what's disappointing is that in many cases, HMRC doesn't appear to have sufficiently deep knowledge of the sector to be able to provide really clear guidance for taxpayers. 
And the result of that is that there is often a lack of clarity or uncertainty, which makes business planning much more difficult. I guess looking further afield, the reaction of other tax authority seems to hinge in many cases on what the profit profile of the new EU business is going to look like. So granting tax equivalence to the new business based on the fact that there won't be a change in profit profile in, in that EU territory. Susan, how does that play out against your kind of experience in, in other sectors? I'd say that um, some of my experience is very similar to yours, Louis, and you know, one of the arguments that does keep popping up is about exit charges um, and whether um, it is correct that an exit charge crystallises, especially where you have a regulated business, on the basis that that transfer business arguably has limited value um, to the transfer or company because if it cannot operate, and because it doesn't have a licence to operate in the EU, then the options that are available to it are fairly limited and therefore the value of that business is arguably also very limited. But what we have seen, um, Louis, is the HMRC have so far pushed back on these arguments and um, they are being quite adamant that they do expect exit charges to arise in these situations. Okay, um, Stephen, I'd like perhaps just to come back to you now, because um, we've talked about exit charges and, and valuations, but I'm also very conscious that there are a number of other major tax issues that, uh, that need to be dealt with. Perhaps if we can start with customs, because the customs duty position is going to be very relevant for anyone moving goods uh, between the UK and uh, EU border. What, what do you see as being the area of, of overlap um, or alignment Stephen, when it comes to transfer pricing and, and customs? I think for, for customs duties, that's one of the most common questions being asked in many businesses in, in the UK today. And that's a really difficult question to answer because nobody really knows what the customs arrangement is going to be in a post-Brexit world. So it's really difficult to answer that question. There's always been tension between transfer pricing and customs um, on cross-border trade, less so for EU to EU transfers. I think going forward, that's going to change. How much that will change will depend on what is agreed. Okay, so we'll wait and see, I'm hearing. And Susan, what about the VAT position? Because that, that can be very significant in, in some parts of the market. Yes, so um, from a VAT perspective, then the implications for businesses really will depend largely on whether that business is fully taxable or partially exempt, and hence whether VAT is a cash flow issue or a real cost to the business. Certainly for partially exempt businesses, there can be a real tension between transfer pricing and VAT. Um, and in the Brexit context, that will be especially the case if the existing UK business continues to provide significant support to the new European business, because any large PP charges from the UK into the EU business could result in significant reverse charge back costs. So it's really uh, very important that, we, that transfer pricing and VAT position is considered in tandem and that the transfer price is not looked up in isolation. Yeah, thank you, Susan. And just taking a slightly different tack, Stephen, a number of my clients have been quite concerned where um, they're having to move their regulatory licences from, from the UK to the EU or, or vice versa. But fundamentally, there's no real change in terms of the functions, assets and risks that are being um, undertaken in, uh, in the UK, for example. How do you deal with that? How do you think about that when you're looking at that change in regulatory permissions, but with no fundamental change in what's going on on the ground? That is quite an unusual um, situation to have such significant change in such a short period of time. 
um, across so many sectors without having any certainty or clarity over what the future relationship is going to be. So I think the transfer pricing, when you do make such a change, is, is a really interesting one because what you've effectively got is two entities where before you had one entity, but all the um, functions being performed uh, are still being performed in the UK, um, and that hasn't changed, with the only real difference being the, the regulatory oversight and some regulatory-related functionality in, in, in the new EU territory. As a matter of principle, you would expect that the, the transfer pricing and the profit allocation shouldn't change all that much. However, there's, there's no real experience out there yet in terms of how tax authorities will, will interpret that. Okay, thank you. And Susan, coming back to you, um, you've mentioned people a number of times uh, over the course of, of this discussion. How are you seeing people, uh, clients, respond to where, um, where their individuals are located? Are they using secondees more to manage um, resourcing across the UK and EU? I think they certainly are, um, Louis. I think um, lots of companies um, are reluctant to employ significant new personnel in any new locations in the short term because they just don't know what's going to happen with Brexit, don't know when it will happen, whether it will happen, and therefore they are very reluctant to go out and hire um, new employees. So they are using secondees on a temporary basis, but clearly the use of um, secondees does potentially create PE risks which need to be managed. So, you know, making sure that those secondees are effectively under the, the control um, and reporting of local personnel in the, in the new EU country to make sure that there isn't any inadvertent P risk being created. Yeah, okay. Now, I'd like to, to come back to something that uh, Stephen was alluding to, um, and that's that effectively across the UK and EU businesses, um, post-Brexit, we don't expect that there's going to be um, more profits in the system, so the profit profile isn't likely to change. But now that profit profile, that profit needs to be carved up potentially amongst a greater number of tax authorities and possibly reflecting a greater level of functionality, in particular around the regulatory oversight. So, Susan, how are you advising clients to prepare for the increased levels of controversy that, uh, that we expect from the same size pie having to be shared amongst, um, amongst more territories. Is that the sort of thing that uh, clients would think about a bilateral APA on? I think it's certainly um, an option, Louis, and that will depend clearly on the territories involved, the materiality of the transactions and the complexity of the transactions. I think um, with clients I'm working with at the moment, I think what they're currently doing already is making sure that they've got a detailed understanding of the contribution of both the existing UK business and any new EU operations in terms of decision making um, and level of continued support from the UK. Also making sure that any new model that they obtain advice from, um, local advice from that um, new EU country to mitigate against the risk that they implement something that's um, going to act as a red flag. I'd say that most of my clients haven't quite got to the stage of documentation and defence yet, but my recommendation was clearly to be prepare upfront documentation to support any new model. Um, and as you know, Stephen mentioned previously, a uh, Chapter Nine business restructuring analysis. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, in some situations, a bilateral APA may be an appropriate approach, but it by no means will be the right answer for everyone. No. Okay. Now, I'm conscious, Stephen, that um, the Brexit can has been kicked down the road for, uh, for a long time now. And in fact, the, the latest timing, as I mentioned up front, is that uh, we're likely not to get a decision until uh, the autumn this year in, in October. And that delay creates 
pretty significant costs for those who are building up inventories and extends the planning horizon. How should companies really be thinking about allocating those incremental costs from a transfer pricing perspective, you know, particularly for those perhaps that are operating a, a principal model? I don't think there's any easy answer to your question, Malik, and it does require an assessment of facts and circumstances. However, I think as a matter of a few general principles, you talked about the principal model. I think if historically the group has operated on the principal model and that's how the, the, the group will continue to operate going forward, it probably makes sense that the principal bears at least some of those costs. If the cost rates servicing the UK market and the UK entity um, substantially bears most of the market risk of operating in the UK, then that might be a UK cost that, that is borne, even if the result is that it temporarily depresses what margins the UK or the principal makes for a short period of time. If the costs relate to establishing the new European business or relocating people, that, then it's really the entity that will get advantage of that, that should, should be um, bearing those costs. So I think each taxpayer needs to look at the types of incremental costs that have been incurred and evaluate for each of those costs where is its proper home, and, and that should drive the transfer pricing treatment. Okay, great, thank you. Well, I think it's clear from that discussion that taxpayers have quite a broad range of challenging operational, regulatory, and tax issues to deal with. And I think for most, Brexit planning is really about doing those tactical steps, the minimum required to manage the consequences of, uh, of a worst-case scenario. I think up until now, that, that has been the threat of a, a no-deal Brexit, and, and that risk does now appear to be receding somewhat. But I guess for many organisations, they've had to act already. And, and for those that have acted and for those that are still planning their, their tactical and long-term solution, the key is really understanding what that long-term model will be, including what the movement of roles and functions out of the UK is going to look like, and think about how the supply chain, including the customs and VAT implications, is going to work. And whilst there's still significant political uncertainty around the outcomes, I think what we've heard today is that many businesses are getting on with implementing their contingency planning, aware of what the transfer pricing issues and in particular the interplay with other taxes is. I guess the good news is that whichever way the political debate goes from here, the outcome for business is likely to be less disruptive than many feared uh, a month ago. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Loic, Susan, and Steve. And thank you to everyone who listened to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.